Hello, welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. My co-host today is Nathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thanks for having me. I think at this stage, I should start saying welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. You've done quite a few of these <laughs> at this point. That sounds better. Let's, I like that. Let's go with that. From the next one onwards, I will say welcome back. Has Yeah, I've All lost right. track now. You've been back many times. Anyway, today's topic, Darkman, the superhero film directed and co-written by Sam Raimi. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Often when we do these, you may be seeing something for the first time, like recently we did The Lost Boys, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film from 92. This is an example of a film that we're both watching for the first time and then reviewing. I've never seen Darkman until this review. Neither had I. So this is extremely rare for both of us that we we both line up. We both have this something that lines up that we hadn't seen before. And this is Sam Raimi before Spider-Man, before his yeah. Tobey Maguire trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. Unable to secure the rights to The Shadow, Raimi decided to just create his own superhero. Struck a deal with Universal Studios to make his first Hollywood studio film. I, again, not knowing really anything about Darkman, I didn't realize that the start of the journey was to make a Shadow movie, which they would later do, I think, around 94 with Alec Baldwin. I was going to say, isn't it ironic that that actually ended up happening some years later? Just obviously not with Sam Raimi, because he'd have been no. a few years away from Spider-Man at that point. Wouldn't it be funny if things came full circle for Raimi and he they did a remake of The Shadow and he could acquire the rights and do the film he always wanted to do? You know, we've reviewed that film before. It's a good film. I do like The Shadow. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I forget it. So I'm gonna, I think a rewatch for me is in order. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It is. I like it. Mm. Darkman was Neeson's first action film in the main role. It received generally positive reviews by critics and was commercially successful, grossing 48 million above its 14 million budget. This financial success spawned two direct-to-video sequels, Darkman 2, The Return of Joran in 95, Darkman 3, Die, Darkman Die in 96, as well as <laughs> comic books, video games, action figures. <laughs> like I, I had no I had idea. No idea. No. I had no idea it's, it spawned such a, a merchandising line. No, me neither. Uh, Neeson did not reprise his role for the direct-to-video sequels. But yeah, this was early for Neeson, and this is before his Taken days and all the generic action films he's made of late. But back mm. when this, this first came out, but back when this film first came out, which was 1990, it was his first introduction into action. Yeah, and this obviously long predates uh, his turn as um, Henri Descartes in, in the Dark Knight films. By, yeah, by 15 years. Yeah. So, and it kind of shows, it kind of shows that his, uh, it's his first real foray into action. His acting chops here are a little sort of raw. Like you can see that he's definitely still trying to hone his craft here in this movie. 
Oh, I think by this time he he was on his way as an actor. Like he'd done a lot of notable work, dramatic roles, but I think it's more mm. a case of like this is him venturing into action mm. and him yeah. being like the main player in a whole Yeah, dipping film. his toe into the pool of being the you know the leading man, main main guy. So without seeing this film before, and now, well, not now, but half after we've done this review, I will see those direct-to-video sequels. I just didn't want them to cloud my opinion or influence my opinion of this film. So I will get to those. All right. I just, I just, I mean, I knew of the connection. I knew that Sam Raimi had directed it, co-written mm. it. So the interest was there. But for me, Darkman, I just thought of the hat, the coat, and the bandages. And I didn't really think too much about it. So I didn't really know what it was about. And what it is about, a brilliant scientist is left for dead. He then returns to exact revenge on the people who burned him alive. That's your plot. It's a, it's a slow burn at times. No, oh, pardon the pun. Slow burn at times, but... You know, there is action action in there, but as far as plots go, it is a very basic plot. It's not the film I thought it would be going into it. It was um, quite the... Um, it was quite weird, like, just watching it and just going, what the hell is happening here? Like, I got it, like you say, the, the basic premise of revenge. But beyond that, it's just a, it's so jarring. You just go, what, what is going on here, you know? Raimi is known for a particular style, you know, going back to the Evil Dead films. Mm, uh, he loves his horror. He does, yeah. But he's got an interesting style, and we got to see that most recently with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Badness. If you go back to Spider-Man 2, a good example of Raimi's style is when Doc Ock is on the table and the surgeons are around him, and you see the, right. the perspective from the tentacles. That's very mm. Raimi. So he's got a style, which you do mm. see here, which again, like, and I enjoyed that in this film. And just knowing mm. he's not directing those sequels, maybe that's not present. Yeah, he's he's got a visual aesthetic and that's very strong. That's very apparent. But he also likes to weave a bit of, a bit of humor, a little bit of comedy Absolutely. through what he's doing. Always mm. does that. And it's just like weird moments of like flashes of light. And I don't know, there's, it, it is it is stylized. And there's definitely lots of Raimi-isms in this yeah. film to like. That, that carnival scene, you know, like whether he just wigs out like he's on a bad acid trip. Like what That's what hell? I was saying, yeah, with the flashes of light. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's certainly you know, visually has this movie stand on its own merits. Again, to think mm. it, originally Raimi wanted to direct a shadow movie. And I love the fact that it's like, oh, I can't do that. I'll just go and create a character and yeah, I'll do my, you know, my own pulp character and make yeah. a pulp movie. Yeah. It's probably no surprise to you that initially Raimi's longtime friend and collaborator, Bruce Campbell, was set to play Darkman. Mm. I mean, Raimi casts him in everything, including his Spider-Man oh, yeah. films, more of a cameo, but, and most recently, Doctor Strange. Those two are thick as thieves. They, they, like, they are. collaborated for a long time. They are. It was the studio, though, that rejected the idea because they did not think Campbell could carry the role. 
But then mm. Campbell does later cameo in the film as Peyton's last scene disguise, credited as Final Shemp. So you get to see him at the end. He's the latest disguise because that's it. Yeah. With Darkman, like- he's not just wrapping himself up in bandages. He can take on the disguise of looks. different people. Yeah. yeah. It's like he's saying to the studio, well, screw you. I'm going to put Bruce Campbell in the movie anyway. Yeah, which is uh, which is pretty cool. You know, I didn't mm. know what Final Shemp meant. So I, I did look it up. It is a reference to Shemp Howard, who was frequently doubled by lookalikes in Three Stooges projects after his death. Oh, there you go. But there you go. That's where that, that comes from. Pretty clever. Gary Oldman, Bill Paxton, they were also considered before Liam Neeson was cast. Mm. For the role of Darkman, Raimi wanted someone who could play a monster with the soul of a man, someone who could do all of that beneath a lot of makeup. He also liked Liam Neeson's Gary Cooper charisma. Neeson was drawn to the operatic nature of the story and the inner turmoil of the character. To research the role, Neeson contacted the Phoenix Society, an organization that helps accident victims with severe disfigurements adjust to re-entering society. So there you go. Neeson put his homework in. And that's his dramatic background. He's bringing that to this pulp action movie. It it does have a little bit of a a Phantom of the Opera feel to it because you mentioned the word operatic, and that's what made me think of that. And you're right. You're right. The, the, the disfigurement, his need to hide it, his need to seclude himself and hide away. Um, you can make the references or the comparisons to the Phantom of the Opera. You can make the comparisons to um, Quasimodo, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Just, you know, throughout history, we have these literary figures who want to shy themselves away and hide themselves away from society because they fear that the world will shun them for their physical disfigurements. And that's very apparent. And do you know what? Those examples that you just gave there, love stories. There is a love interest, and we get mm. that here as well with Francis McDormand as Julie Hastings, an attorney mm. and love interest for Peyton. So you think that Raimi's trying to make a comment about that kind of thing as well? Or, well, it, or, or it's, sort of... it's what tends to go with that type of story. Yeah. Because, yeah, like he was in love before, he's disfigured, and then he's feeling right. isolated, and that plays into what Neeson was uh, interested in what I mentioned before. Probably fearful of what his partner might think of his disfigurement as well. You know, yeah. She'd probably think, oh, you're a freak, get away from me type thing. You know, Raimi had wanted to work with McDormand, but the studio resisted this notion and almost cast Julia Roberts. Oh, wow. But there's a reason why they didn't get Julia Roberts, because... Pretty Woman made her a yeah. star. So if not for yeah. Pretty Woman, we may have had Julia Roberts in this film. There you go. And at one point, they did want Demi Moore. The director went as far as testing Bridget Fonda, but felt that she was too young for Neeson. Eventually, uh, Raimi got the actor that he wanted in Frances McDormand. So he didn't get Bruce Campbell as the star, but he did get to work with Frances McDormand. I wonder what it was about McDormand that drew him to her, why he doggedly pursued her for the role. I wonder what he saw in her that, that made him, him go, this is the actress I want. Well, she she's married to Joel Cohen, one half of the mm-hmm. Cohen brothers. Yep. And the Cohen brothers and Raimi go 
way back. Oh. Joel Cohen, he edited Raimi's first film, The Evil Dead, in 81. So they probably, I guess, knew each other socially. Mm. Wanted to okay. work with her and then... So there's probably happened. more social connections. Yeah. It happened with this. You know, the Cohen brothers do have a cameo in this film. And also, oh, wow. like, something or... Yeah, something that Raimi puts in all of his movies, his Oldsmobile, his car. It's the car Ash is driving in Evil Dead, and you see it in all of his movies. It always makes an appearance. The Coens are in the Oldsmobile in this film. Interesting. So there you go. Fun little, I love that. Fun little cameo. I love that. I love those little quirky behind-the-scenes things that you'd never otherwise know. We've got Colin Friels as Lewis Stack Jr., a corrupt and hoity billionaire developer who runs Stack Industries. Originally, they were looking at Richard Dreyfuss and James Kahn. Both turned it down. The role went to Stack Jr. Well, wow. Yeah, I've got to be honest. Um, yep, he has a certain presence but when you think about this movie and you think of the bad guy you mm. think of robert g durant the ruthless and sadistic mob boss he works mm. under Strack, but he's the main villain really and he's played here by larry drake and he may or may not come back for that sequel <laughs> i'll have to i'll have to check it out isn't it funny how sometimes you get a villain who's not the the main villain of the piece, but certainly steals the show or like seems to steal the main villain's thunder. And like you said, for all intents and purposes, probably was or could be the main villain. I mean, maybe if the got Dreyfus or Khan, Someone the character would have, cool. yeah, the mm. character would have had more presence. But I think it's just the fact that with Joran, they give him a thing. Most villains mm. have a thing. His thing. Mm. He's got a finger fetish. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that came from Raimi wanting the character to have a specific trademark and one that mm. hinted at a military background, which would explain why Durant is proficient with a grenade launcher when he's firing it from a helicopter, because this movie gets ridiculous. <laughs> it does. And he's suspended from a helicopter, flying over the city, getting pursued by a grenade launcher. Whenever watching a Sam Raimi movie, it's like, right, when's Ted going to pop up? When is his brother, Ted Raimi, going to make an appearance? And yeah. he's in all of them, and that's okay. He even pops up in things like, I think, Xena, Warrior Princess, oh, uh, wow. Hercules, The Legendary Journey, back when Raimi was producing those. Was it, yeah, Ted was Raimi. With Kevin? Yes, Kevin that's Sorbo. Kevin Sorbo. Oh, my God. Wow. Mate, I, I used to love that show. <laughs> Me too. I used to watch it so I was, much. I'm not ashamed at all. I used to watch it. I'm not ashamed. I used to love it, mate. I had the VHS. <laughs> I had them <laughs> on VHS. Awesome. Bruce Campbell, he's in that also. Oh, wow. I, I'd love to go back and rewatch those. But anyway, back to Raimi, or specifically yes. Ted Raimi. He plays Rick Anderson, one of Durant's henchmen. I think I keep saying his name wrong or differently each time. Durant or Durant? One of the two. Durant. 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 It's going to be Durant. That sounds better. That's all. I think I keep saying it differently. Anyway, um, 
So Anderson is a unassuming looking man. He is treated more like a very close friend or confidant uh, slash protege of Durant. He is the first henchman killed by Darkman getting his head run over. He scores a right. really gory death. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's a pretty gory film at times. But yeah, again, it that's is. A it is. It absolutely is. I mean, it reigns in for his Spider-Man films, but when you're watching his movies, it does get pretty violent and over the top. You can almost imagine the studio heads just like, you know, it's Sony just saying, hey, you know, we love, we know you love your gory stuff, but just kind of tone it down for these big budget summer blockbusters. And, and you know, when you do your independent projects, you can go nuts. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes pretty out there with, I don't want to spoil it, but in Doctor Strange, it goes yeah. pretty out there with the mm. horror visuals. I mean, it's not quite like what he does in his own like, original properties, but yeah, he definitely has some mean. fun. I know what you mean. It's that. like he, he's, allowed, he's allowed to be let off the leash a bit sometimes. Yeah. Mm. Makeup effects artist Tony Gardner, who also cameos in the film as the Lizard Man in the Carnival Freak Show sequence, designed and created the makeup effects required to turn Neeson into Darkman. Wow. There you go. Mm. Pretty, pretty good makeup, pretty good visual effects, I must say. Oh, definitely. And for the time as well. I found this mm. interesting because, again, knowing nothing about it before going in, I was curious how this movie was received back then, back in 1990, because of some of the bonkers things that happened in it. Early preview screenings did not go well as people laughed in the wrong places and complained about a lack of a happy ending. Universal <laughs> told Raimi that some people rated it the worst film they had ever seen. According to executives, the film was one of the worst scoring pictures in Universal's history. Then, two preview screenings, one with Danny Elfman's score, went well. We've not mentioned Elfman yet. I was going to say, before, he's the elephant in the room here. Yeah, before they worked together on Spider-Man, they were working together here. But when his music was included, people had a better time with the movie. Just goes to show you, folks, get Danny Elfman as your composer and you can do wonders. Yeah, well, just film score in general, it can make such a difference. And it really can make or really? break a scene. And in this mm. case, absolutely making it. Producer Rob Tappert remembers, the experience on Darkman was very difficult for Sam and me. It isn't the picture we thought it should be based on the footage we shot and all that. The studio got nervous about some of the wild things in it and made us take them out, which was unfortunate. So Universal got nervous and they changed the film. Wow. I mean, I suppose because it was pretty off the wall, you know, people back, back, back in 1990 would have been like, what the hell are we watching? I kind of had that same reaction in 2022, to be honest with you. I'm watching it going, what is going on here? You know, I did read that... Raimi went on holiday and the mm -hmm. film got changed in his absence. Oh, and he would like that. Just before it was released, he put some scenes back in that Universal didn't want, but then he, the film was locked and that was the finished film. Wow. Yeah, yeah so you wonder, a shame. You wonder how it went on to gain cult status. It's It really is like, 
uh, a cult, a really a cult classic these days, and people seem to love it. And you just wonder how it came to be so beloved and, and garner that cult status sort of branding if it was initially so, um, so sort of um, not very well received. Well, like a lot of films from back then, they do go on to cult status and they find a second life on VHS, which I think would have happened for this film. And maybe people who missed it at the time on the back of Raimi's Spider-Man films went back or you'd, you'd have had films or fans, should I say, of the Evil Dead films. So Raimi would have had a small inbuilt audience, but then I think people would have gone back years later, like we have now, watched it for the first mm. time and liked things about it. But the fact that even though they were direct-to-home release, it got two sequels. And again, the, the comics, like the toys, like this was definitely going to be a thing for Universal. It just didn't pan out the way that maybe they intended, but certainly changing the movie that he'd made but it goes mm. to show as well like so what was it 81 that Raimi had done the evil dead so mm. only nine years later was he making this his first big hollywood film Raimi isn't who he is now so he wouldn't have had the clout that he has now uh the pulling clout that's right the, the big name he's got for himself that's it. If he I was mean, making I, this film today and he's like, do you know what? I want Bruce Campbell. Well, then again, maybe not now, but 10 years ago, I'm sure he could have got Bruce Campbell as the lead. Oh, yeah. I mean, he would he would have carte blanche. The studio would just be, you know, like handing him wads of cash and saying, get whoever you want, you know? So I think it's apparent that, or you can see why Raimi maybe didn't have the best time throughout the whole experience. Uh, but mm. he did say that he likes the brilliant marketing campaign and it's one that the studio came up with, releasing posters in advance with a silhouette of the main character in the question, who is Darkman? I like that. According to the director, the marketing made the film a moneymaker. So there you go. So keep in mind, I mean, you know, again, as well as the sequels, it happened because this movie did turn a profit, a budget of 40 million, 48.8 million at the box office. So it was no way like a failure. Yes. Yeah, it was no by no means a slouch. You have to remember that this is that marketing you just mentioned is pre-internet. So, you know, that's pretty interesting. And we were talking off air the other week when we were going to watch this about how you can compare it to a very similar marketing campaign they did for the Matrix. You know, that scene in you saw in cinema, that screen you saw in cinemas that said, What is the Matrix? And it just that's all it was, just a question posed. And the audience went, What 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 is this? What's the matrix? What's it about? And it built and generated so much hype for the matrix by the time it came out people were just rabid for it and i think i imagine a similar thing must have happened with dark man yeah definitely but just asking the question who is dark man i mean again this was 1990 a year earlier warner brothers made batman and it was just yep. the bat emblem that was the marketing mm. the initial marketing was just the logo for the film just like the dummy mm. ghostbusters in 84 isn't that amazing yeah but it, it gets you it gets people talking and and, the, and just having having the question who is dark man and people at the time being like i don't know who is dark man <laughs> let's go find out yeah definitely. let's give the let's give the box office out 13 dollars and walk in there and find out mentioned elfman already he said to have thoroughly enjoyed working with Raimi on this movie the two would later collaborate on spider-man spider-man 2 and um, 
Unfortunately, due to creative differences, Elfman didn't come back for Spider-Man 3, but they would later reunite for Oz the Great and Powerful in 2013, which, do you know what? Mm. That was the last film Raimi made until Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness in 2022. Which Elfman did come back and join him for. He did, but what a what a gap in Raimi's resume yeah. from 2013 to 2022. Well, I mean, when you think about it, um, being a director is probably just like any form of art. If you're a creative, you need a muse. And sometimes the well runs dry. And sometimes, you know, your creative juices aren't firing and there's just nothing out there exciting you or nothing speaking to you as, as a creator, as an artist. So maybe that's what happened. But he's back now and I am very happy that he is back. Me too. It feels like he's really upped his game again and, and got his groove back and reamplified his creativity. And that shows with what we saw in Doctor Strange 2. Absolutely. So this film, if you're going to rate it out of five. Hmm. Okay. This is a toughie for me. I'm I'm kind of wrestling with like three to three point five. Um, possibly a four, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more in the threes for me. Um, just because it's not a crap film or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think for me, it's just, it's just so jarring. It was just so, what the hell is this? You know, I I didn't know what I was diving into. And I think that kind of shows it's, it's, it's kind of cool. And I get why people like it. I get why it's a cult film. Danny Elfman's involvement definitely really lifts it up as well. I think it could have suffered for, and been the poorer for his absence had he not come in to do the score. But um, yeah, just because it's just such a, a weird kind of thing. And, and for me, I was just sort of left scratching my head after it. I, I did like it, but I, it was a head scratcher. And so for me, it's, I'm coming in, I'll, I'll say 3.5. Not bad, but not fantastic, if that makes sense. I'm going to come in a little bit lower. I'm going to come in with a three out of five. And if I'm honest, that's lifted from a 2.5. Oh, wow. I can see why people enjoy this movie, and it certainly yeah. is made up of a lot of elements that I like, you know, from Elfman's previous work, Raimi's previous work. Mm. Neeson is really great as the lead. So there's a lot of, a lot of the elements are working for me, um, but it's not a film that I think I would watch for a second time. As I've said earlier, I will see those sequels out of curiosity just to have mm. the full Dark Man experience. But the reason I'm going to come in at a three and not a 2.5 is because I always say three is a recommend. And this is a movie that I would recommend to people who haven't seen it, who have seen Raimi's other work. Like it is definitely worth watching. And the movie goes by very, very quickly. Like this movie is not a drag at all it does feel very dated but then it was purposely going for a pulpy style like Mm. again very stylized yeah it's it is a good film uh, but it's not my favorite of Raimi's work but um but yeah definitely recommend a three out of five I'll totally agree with you there and I think I'm glad you said the word dated because I that was on my mind um it definitely feels like something made earlier in the 80s and not so much 1990. It does have a very dated 80s feel right. to it. It doesn't spring yeah. 90s. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like it has has a dated look. 
Well, that's it for our episode all about Darkman. If you want to contact us about this episode or request a topic for an upcoming show, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. Nathan, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me along. Always a pleasure to have a chore. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.